Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Let me welcome back to the program Andrew Dunn. He is the uh, writer over at Longleaf Politics. He's, uh, he's got a substack, longleafpolitics.com, or I guess it's longleafpol.com. Do you have, did you get, have you gotten Longleaf Politics back yet? The, have you gotten it back yet? Not yet. I'm oh. still working on that. Oh, man. Dude, I, I lost my name. The yeah, PeteCalendar.com. Someone's squatting on the name. <laughs> I can't That's get brutal. it. That's terrible. Uh all right. So you got a piece uh that posted the other day called Roy Cooper Hopes to Turn Clock Back on Education Fight. And uh if people want sort of inside information on uh and political analysis at a state level, I highly recommend you you uh, follow Andrew Dunn in this Longleaf Politic uh substack that he writes. Um because this is uh this I have not seen this kind of analysis on the move that Cooper did with his stunt of emergency, as I'm calling it, on education. Um, you say that what? All right, let me ask you this way: What was the goal? What was Cooper's goal in in doing this thing the other day? Right, I, I like that phrase, "stunt of emergency." That's exactly what it was. Um, you know, he he called it a state of emergency, but there was no, no real executive power being invoked here. What it was was a PR stunt, um, and I would argue a very successful one. I mean, here we are more than a week later still talking about it, and it got all sorts of national attention. But what he was really trying to do is return our state's conversation around the education issue to really where we were about 10 years ago, um, shortly after Republicans took control of the General Assembly. That was uh, Cooper and the Democratic Party's main attack line was you know, Republicans don't care about public education. Republicans are trying to starve public education. And um, that's really the type of conversation that uh, Governor Cooper is trying to get back to. Uh, but Republicans are really betting that post-COVID, that that's not where the people of North Carolina and the voters of North Carolina, that's not where they're at anymore. All right. So uh, do me a favor. Let's try to reconnect. uh for some reason, the static on there's a lot of static on the line. I don't know if are you hearing it on your end, Andrew? No, I'm not. Okay, so it's it's real it's real bad on our end, and so I don't want to I don't want to uh, spoil the the conversation with us because it's distracting. So let me go ahead, let me put you on hold, and uh, we'll have Bernie uh, call you back. Hopefully, we'll get a better connection. I don't know what the deal is with the uh, with the uh, uh, the connection, but again, Andrew Dunn. Longleaf politics, and um, he says what Cooper's goal is to build his party's case for 2024 and reframe the debate around education. He, He wants to resurrect a narrative from the early 2010s that the Republican led legislature is waging a war against public education, which this is what for folks who aren't who weren't here in 2010. This is what really drew out the biggest numbers during the Moral Monday movement. This is like the red for Ed crowd during the Moral Monday movement. That part was huge until the Republicans started throwing a bunch of money at education. I think we got him back now. All right, uh, Andrew, 
Are you there? Can you I'm hear back. me? Oh, much better, much much clearer. Uh, right. So this. So I remember 2010. I remember these arguments that that uh, the Democrats were making that the Republicans don't care about teachers. They don't care about education or public schools and all of that. So why um, why do you think? Well, first off, are the Republicans going to be uh, insulated from that kind of attack now? Well, it really remains to be seen. You know, Republicans did a lot in the latter part of the last decade to really counteract that argument. I mean, there was about three or four years in a row with record teacher pay increases. North Carolina really vaulted up the the rankings in terms of teacher pay. Um, Then around 2020, you know, when when COVID hit, that sort of stopped and kind of stalled out. and, And the General Assembly is turned its attention to some other places when it comes to education. So it's really a big bet that Governor Cooper is making. I mean, he clearly believes that Republicans are vulnerable here. Uh, But what Republicans are arguing is, hey, look, the people of North Carolina, they get it now that it's not just about the amount of money that you spend. It's about what you're teaching. It's about how you're holding schools accountable. And my guess is that that Republicans are right. I think that Governor Cooper is going to lose this bet, but I guess it still remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of makes sense, too, because the Democrats have focused and they believe this to be a winning issue for them. They'll tell you, like, the election cycles where they do well, they'll say it was because health care. They made health care one of the top uh, issues that they hammered the Republicans on. But with the expansion of Medicaid now, looking forward, they can't use that, and I suspect that's why they're they, they refer to you know abortion health care, <laughs> women's reproductive health care. I suspect that's part of that branding effort as well. And so, if you don't have anything except abortion access as the argument to make, and you've got the Republicans that just passed this bill that most North Carolinians and Americans seem to be on board with that level of restriction, um, what else do you have? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it's always a little bit more complicated than that. Um, you know, Democrats will say that this, you know, the results of the election were due to this one thing. Republicans might say it's due to this other thing. But there's so many different factors. And you also have to keep in mind the top of the ticket at the federal level. I mean, that just plays so much of, of an impact in, in how our local and statewide elections come out. So it's really hard to draw those really clear lines. Yeah. Um, so what are some ideas uh, that uh, that the Republicans can look to that you would recommend uh, that they look to? And for folks who don't know, Andrew worked uh, in the past for the former lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest, as well. So this is, you know, the, you know, North Carolina state politics. This is sort of your wheelhouse, your former reporter as well. So what are some ideas that you think Republicans might be able to to utilize? Yeah, and, and I've got a couple of them. You know, basically what I'm arguing in my piece is that, you know, with this new emphasis on education, Republicans need to get a couple more wins on the board ahead of the, the 2024 elections. And there's a couple bills that are out there uh, that I would expect the General Assembly to take back up, one being the Parents' Bill of Rights, the other being the Equality and Education Bill. That's the, the anti-critical race theory bill. I would expect, you know, both of those have passed one chamber uh, so far, and I would expect those to get passed by the end of this legislative term. Um, but I had a couple other ideas. Uh, for things Republicans could take on. And uh, one of the big ones is to really, truly audit how the hundreds and hundreds of millions of federal dollars that school districts have gotten across the state, uh, something like $4 billion total, 
uh, coming to public schools from the, all that COVID relief money. All the school districts have been really struggling to figure out where to spend it all. But um, really taking a look at, you know, one, was all that money properly used? But two, did any of those things that we spent money on actually work? Did any of it actually move the needle? And that might, might uh, give us an indication of whether it's worth continuing to fund that sort of thing. Right. I remember saying at the time, we, oh, look, if you're going to kick a whole bunch of money down to the school districts, then make it be for ventilation, you know, improving ventilation in the schools and moving airflow through. If that's if that's what the COVID money was supposed to be for, um, then it seems like, yeah, you should be able to show us the receipts of what what you used it for. I liked your other idea, tackle administrative bloat in school districts. To me, that might be actually the sweet spot because it goes after uh, sort of the, the this line item in the budgets that I think a lot of people do. I think rightfully, do not associate with educating kids so much. You want to pay the teachers more. Okay, well, how about we take some of that administrative bloat out of the picture and use the money for the teacher pay? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I saw some numbers the other day, you know, looking here at Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools over the last five five or so years, um, the budget has gone up by something like $800 million, but the actual number of students in the district has actually decreased. So where, where exactly is all that money going? You, you have to assume that it's going right to the administration. Well, someone's got to pay Ibram X. Kendi to come do a talk at the price yeah, of exactly like, like $30,000, whatever it was, right? For a uh, Zoom call. Yeah, yeah, for a Zoom call, exactly. And, and, you know, they spent a year reading his book. A year. Like, really? It took you a year to read that book? That's kind of ridiculous, but... Uh, hey, I always appreciate you making time for us. Andrew Dunn, you can read his piece. It's called Roy Cooper Hopes to Turn Clock Back on Education Fight. Uh, good to hear from you, sir. We'll have you back on soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Always great to be on the show. Oh, hey, real quick. Before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, Radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Thanks again to Andrew Dunn. Um... Longleafpolitics.com. It's a Substack. It's a newsletter. It's, uh, I mean, there are donations you could you can make for exclusive content and that sort of stuff. And uh, I highly recommend it if you are interested in North Carolina politics. Andrew Dunn uh, is a guy to read. So Roy Cooper hopes to turn back the clock on education fight. That's the name of the piece. Um. The he he starts off by saying that first off. Got to give Cooper credit. He's good at PR. Did the five-minute video, the dramatic turn of phrase, and Cooper dominates then the political discussion over the last week. And in the meantime, at the same time, he ratchets up the pressure on the General Assembly who are at that same time trying to expand school choice for North Carolina families. That wasn't by coincidence, right? Cooper will not succeed in killing the school choice bill. It's overwhelmingly popular, and it's good for North Carolina families. There was a Civitas poll that came out last week, uh, or, yeah, last week or so, 
and it said 52% of North Carolinians support the bill. Only 22% oppose it. So it's popular. We know this about vouchers as well. Vouchers are popular across all demographic cohorts. But that's not really the goal. The goal wasn't to kill the school choice bill. He knew he couldn't. The goal is for him to build his party's case for next year's elections. He's trying to resurrect the narrative that the Republicans are waging a war against public education, that they don't care about the children. It is a bet that might not pay off, he says. And he mentioned this during the chat that we just had with him, that COVID lockdowns changed the conversation about education across the country. And now parents are more skeptical of how those dollars are being used. I have noticed this as well. He's my personal experience is the same as his here in that. I mean, I rem, you talk to people 15 years ago and it was always even 10. It was always the same thing. It was just, you know, more money, more money. And you hear a lot more people now question how much is enough. One of my favorite questions to ask when engaging in a discussion about education funding is what's the optimal number? Whether it's a per pupil expenditure number or it's a teacher salary number, what's the right number? What's the optimal number? Speaking of which, I have a number for you here. It's 704. No, I'm kidding. It's um, it's $8,434. That, my friends, is the... Per pupil budget expenditure for K-12 education in North Carolina, eighty-four thirty-four. Public education spending is at the highest level in state history, even when adjusting for inflation. This is according to the Carolina's Partnership for Reform. It is a pro-liberty, limited government entity. But they crunch the numbers and they say the author, and this is numbers that come from the Fiscal Research Division. That's a nonpartisan General Assembly um, entity. And they they adjusted it for inflation and it comes out at 84.34. They then have a quote uh, from Rachel Hunt, right? She is the daughter of the former governor, Jim Hunt. Jim Hunt was labeled the education governor. And she says her daddy fully funded public schools. Well, the current legislature doesn't. Meh. All right, well, let's see how Daddy Hunt did. He was governor between 1992 and 2000. And inflation-adjusted per-pupil funding increased by 19.9%. During that eight-year window, it went up 20%. Not too shabby, right? Okay. Well, let's take a look now at over the last eight years in the General Assembly, since they've been doing the budgets. Past eight years, inflation-adjusted per-pupil funding increased by 21.6%. Wow, that's almost two full percentage points more. That is a higher increase than when the education governor held office. And yes, that's adjusted for inflation. So you don't get to make the argument that Daddy Hunt was the education governor and the legislature hates public education when the legislature has funded higher 
increases. It's also higher in real dollars, too, because of inflation and all. But 84.34, that's the per pupil expenditure. What is the correct number? All right, hey, real quick. It is estimated that more than 6 million Americans have Alzheimer's. It affected my family. My grandpa had it. New research and treatments are showing promise, but there's still a long way to go. So can you help me by supporting the Alzheimer's Association's Western Carolina chapter? The Family Dance Party Charlotte's on June 10th from 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock. It's at the Roxbury Nightclub in Uptown Charlotte. Go to Mix1079.com and get tickets and come bust a move on the dance floor or donate tickets to a family that's battling the disease. The Family Dance Party is presented by Jameson Realty. Again, if you can help us out, I appreciate it. Go to Mix1079.com and thank you for considering the request. The Twitter handle is at Pete Calliner, and that's Calliner with a K and then an A, followed by an L-I-N-E-R. And I got a message here from Cindy. It's a Pete tweet. She says, serious question. Why do people like Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, and others get in the race for president? They know they cannot win. Is it just to dilute the vote? To audition for the vice presidency? To say that they did it, it makes no sense. So there are there are several reasons, right? I'm sure... There are some of them that believe that they actually can win. I mean, sure, sure, they're polling at less than 1%, but, you know, they're going to get that Haley Mentum or something. Or the, the, the Asa Hutchinson Mentum. That's what you do. You, Asa Mentum. You, you put that, you, you put momentum and the name into, anyway. Um, there are some of them that actually, yes, do believe that they're going to, they're going to make some surge. They're going to come from behind and they're going to, you know, ignite the passions and all that. There are others who are stalking horses, which is to dilute the vote, right? It's to, it's to attack. Um, this is what, um, this is what happened with Donald Trump in 2016 in that you had uh, people going after, was it the Jeb crowd that was going after Marco Rubio? And they were so intent they ran ads against Rubio and ignored Donald Trump and Trump benefited from all of that. He was, he got no, he got no fire against him because people thought Rubio or Cruz were, were going to be the nominees and Cruz had actually built this, this operation and was just waiting for Trump to implode. And then he was going to, that's why he put up with Trump calling his wife names and his dad an assassin, right? Because he didn't want to alienate the Trump voters because he had built his whole campaign around those people voting for him. And then they didn't. And he lost. So there are people that are in there to do the same sort of thing to different candidates. Some of this stuff is personal. Some of it is simply uh, vanity candidacy uh, candidacies. People who um, use it to further book sales. You know, if you're if you're uh, a presidential candidate, then you still get invited to be on the talk show circuit. And by the way, those gigs pay. A lot of people don't realize that. See, like, I don't pay people to be on my show. Um, and so there's this, you know, balancing act that I would like very much for guests when I invite them to be on the show. I, You know, if I'm inviting you, I'd like you to be on. But I'm not going to pay you to be on. And some of these, quote, contributor gigs that these former politicians have pay pretty well. 
And so the way you keep that pay coming is that you have to be connected, right? We can't all be what's her face on the view Anna Navarro. <laughs> She's not connected. Oh, anyway. All right. Um, so back to the uh, piece by uh, Andrew Dunn, longleafpolitics.com. The case for school choice, he says, is abundantly clear. Okay. And as he mentioned earlier, we are still awash in federal cash. Remote learning during COVID lockdowns fundamentally changed the conversation about education. Uh, the state school districts have all this money. It's undercutting their arguments that schools simply don't have enough of it. Um, the North Carolina Constitution requires every student be given the opportunity for a sound basic education. Although it doesn't actually say sound basic education, but it says that you have the opportunity. And for the majority of children, the traditional public school system will be the best method for that to happen. I said this the other day. I don't, like, everybody thinks, oh, the school choice, not everybody, the leftists and the, the K-12 GovCo school model defenders, the proponents of government-run monopoly schools, they argue that this is going to destroy public schools. Oh, were it to be true. But no, it won't be. There are a lot of people that want the K-12 school current model to continue to exist. They're going to keep sending their kids there. Look at, look at what's happening right now in South Charlotte with the, the feeder schools and the new uh, uh, high school coming online. And They're having protests. They're out there doing hands across the street at uh, AG Middle, whatever, like uh, to Myers Park High School. Like, they're not wanting to be reassigned out of their their current K-12 school. They are all on board with the current model. And how dare you put us into a brand new school, right? It also highlights just the dumbassery inherent in this student assignment zone process. If you look at the maps, it's like, that's absurd. You're going to send this kid who's closer to this high school. You're going to send him, you know, seven miles away, and you're going to bust some other kid seven miles away to this high school. Because they're, right, there's, they're busing. They're still trying to bus based on socioeconomic status. And why do they do that? Because it's a surrogate for race. That's what CMS is about. That's the whole point. So the very fact you're having those arguments still, when there are vouchers that are like, there, there's no voucher money here, people. Like, for you, you listen to my good friend Ray Cooper talk, all the rich people, they're going to be getting all the voucher money and they're going to be funding all their private schools and religious schools. Well, why isn't that happening right now? Why are these people in Southeast Charlotte and Ballantyne, why are they all screaming bloody murder about how they're going to be shipped out of their current K-12 school? The K-12 government model is going to be fine, folks. Okay? Cool your pants. It's going to be fine. But you need to make it a catastrophe. Because that's what spurs voters, particularly on the left, is emotionalism. you got to tap into that emotion. And everything has to be the end of the world. So this has to be the end of K-12 education. This has to be the end of education. Johnny can't read now because the vouchers. Like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of dumbassery we, we get subjected to because emotionalism motivates the left. It motivates people on the right, too. Don't get me wrong, but like the studies actually show this stuff on the use of emotion versus logic. And, anyway, point here is that Cooper is 
it's using this in order to motivate people for 2024. Will it work, though? Historically, they play pretty well, right? There is a general consensus, Andrew Dunn writes, there's a general consensus that North Carolina public schools don't perform as well as they should. And the funding issue is a simple, easy-to-understand scapegoat. Will it continue to work, though? Well, Republican lawmakers might consider doing some stuff. He throws out some ideas that we went over. Parents' Bill of Rights, incentives to uh, recruit top principals and teachers, tackle administrative bloat, that sort of thing. School choice is critical, but shoring up the traditional public school system is as well. Cooper is prepping for 2024, and Republicans in the legislature need to do so as well. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's military surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Chicago Sun-Times reporting. Former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has been hired to teach a class at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The name of the class, Health, Policy, and Leadership. She has no background in science, in epidemiology, or infectious disease. She's going to teach this class based on her experience during COVID. She has a teaching gig at Harvard because she was the mayor of Chicago. This is, these are jobs programs. I've got another story. Where is it? Because uh, I just saw this. It's in the stack of stuff here. Mm. It may be. Well, it's Chase Bowden. Bowden? Bowden? Whatever. The son of the Weather Underground terrorists killed two cops and a Brinks guard during a robbery in the, like, 60s or whatever. They went to prison and poor Chesa Bowden grew up visiting his mom and dad in prison and turned him into a radical communist. Although I would submit he's probably a red diaper baby to begin with, but whatever. So now he's all about, you know, uh, reforming the criminal justice system. And he won himself a, a spot as the DA, right? He became district attorney in, was it Los Angeles or San Francisco? I think it was L.A. Where's Gascon? Gascon is in L.A. So maybe it was San Fran. Anyway, he got uh, he got recalled, right? Bowden did such a terrible job that after two years of turning everybody loose, he got recalled. And now he just landed a teaching gig. I saw this this morning. It was in my stack of stuff. Uh, he landed himself a gig at Berkeley as a professor, right? These are the jobs programs that the, quote, higher academia, higher education, give to leftists. I remember when Pat McCrory lost his re-election bid for governor. 
And he was in talks to go become a, you know, one of these lecturers or whatever. It may, it may have been his alma mater at uh, Catawba. I forget where. But he, he, he talked about it on air, right? It's, he didn't hide it, but they, like, he got canceled from that. They, they pulled that offer from him because they are responsive to the feelings of the leftists. You can't have Pat McCrory. He didn't want us to be able to pee and shower with members of the opposite sex. Because sex, remember, isn't gender, unless, of course, it is for the purposes of getting a particular agenda item approved. So uh, he was not allowed to go work in, in the college system. He was not given that same opportunity. That kind of stuff happens all the time. All the time. That's the march through the institutions. So... Oh, no. Congratulations, though, to Lori Lightfoot and all of the young skulls of mush that shall be corrupted by her expertise in dealing with COVID. Yeah. In Raleigh, a years-long legislative effort to legalize mobile sports betting is nearing the finish line. Two Senate committees heard the current version. It passed today. It goes back to the House for concurrence. Um... Jason Sane, uh, state representative from Lincoln County, said the Senate has had a thoughtful process and have been good partners in seeing this legislation through. I think their good faith efforts are greatly appreciated by sponsors and supporters of the bill. The bill uh, does not go into effect until January to allow time for the Lottery Commission to vet applications, award licenses, and set up other regulations. Another change contemplated by the Senate... um, a provision that uh, would put anybody who owes child support or owes the state money on a list of prohibited gamblers that operators have to check before creating accounts. There is also an appetite in the House to, quote, take a look at legalizing casinos in the state, which we already have, Catawba Two Kings Casino. We have the one in uh, Cher- uh, Cherokee one out in Western North Carolina. I think there's a third. I don't know. What's the, I thought I saw somewhere that there were three. But now, see, what happened is um, Virginia just opened up one in Danville, an hour and a half from Raleigh, and that's got leaders worried. There is some general discussion right now. Phil Berger said, if you look at population centers... The real population centers are south of Danville in North Carolina. So I think there is a legitimate concern of a drain from North Carolina into Virginia. (gasps) Almost as if Virginia did that on purpose. Right? They located it closer to population centers of people that don't live in their state. So they can get that sweet, sweet tourism dollar. So they're not, right, I mean, yeah, they're going to have some of their people gambling in their establishments, of course. But the key here is to get people from across the border who don't live in Virginia to just drive in, spend a bunch of money, and then go home. Because you don't have to pay for any services for them. Don't need to build schools, right? Don't need more firehouses, no sidewalks and roads, none of that. Yeah, that's. there is a reason why... You know, depressed economies, third world economies, that's why they go for the tourist dollars. It takes very little to just, you know, generate the revenue. So that might happen coming up.
We'll keep an eye on it. News is next.